Hello and welcome to the Majlis podcast, Ready for Free the Liberties, current affairs talk show focusing on Central Asia. I'm Mohammed Tahir, host of the Majlis and Ready for Free the Liberties media manager here in Washington, D.C., Turkmenistan and COVID-19. We have spoken about this a couple of times already this year. However, each time we end up uh, coming to the same point where the local authorities remain in denial despite growing evidence of the spread of the pandemic in the country. It's unclear what is behind the their stubborn attitude, but the impact of this has been severe as the pandemic not only spreading, but is turning deadly. And authorities are not willing or unable to handle this properly. Now, a group of Turkmen and Jews in exile in an open letter to the World Health Organization is raising the SARS flag in calling not only for help, but to intervene in the situation. The letter went out this week and was signed by a number of NGOs. So on this Majlis podcast, we are here to do a reality check on the impact of COVID-19 in Turkmenistan in the context of this letter. To do so... I'm joined by Ruslan Matiev, the editor of Turkmen News, uh, one of the authors of the letter. Rachel Denber, Human Rights Watch's Deputy Director for Europe and Central Asia Division. And Bruce Panier, the editor of Ready Free Appreal Liberties Central Asia blog, Kishlok Awazi. Thank you, colleagues, for joining us on this important conversation. So, Ruslan, let's get into this with the open letter that uh, you were also party to that. And so tell us, please, what is this all about and the, the content of the letter? This letter is all about trying to get the WHO's attention to the situation in Turkmenistan. The situation is bad. Turkmenistan is facing uh, today the third wave of coronavirus. We have been tracking it, tracing it since the very beginning, since uh, early spring uh, of last year. And we can say definitely that at the moment it, it is the third wave of COVID in Turkmenistan because dozens of people are dying. The local cemeteries are expanding we get reports from the ground that people have have started to die actually after the government came to a decision to make vaccination mandatory and uh, basically every day we report about this case and even today we reported uh, on two cases uh, from the southern region of mari in Turkmenistan, where two women died from implications of coronavirus. So that was the idea, basically. We we tried to put all our thoughts and um, proposals to the WHO, what the Turkmen civil society believes this organization needs to do, not even needs to do, must do in light of, uh, of the news from the ground. Mm-hmm. This idea was supported, basically, by uh, all other um, uh, signees or co-signees and uh, we finalized the letter and sent it. Unfortunately, up until today, there was no response from uh, Hans Kluge, the head of European Bureau of uh, the WHO. Mm-hmm. We are going to talk about the response or lack thereof a uh, little bit later. Ruslan, just to follow up, I mean, you said Turkmenistan is going through third wave. I understand this to be one reason, but is there anything else in terms of the timing in which you decided to release this letter? Actually not. The timing is the number of reports that we're getting. Uh, the timing is the continued uh, position of the Turkmen regime that still denies that COVID exists. They urge citizens to wear masks and to protect themselves against some harmful dust. Uh, initially, it was coming supposedly from the RLC, but as we know, neither the Kazakh government nor the Uzbek government 
on, on whose territory that sea is located, actually, they have never reported about any harmful dust coming from what has remained from the Aral Sea. Mm-hmm. This is some new phenomenon, and uh, all of these things, like the number of deaths and uh, the government's continued denial of COVID, was the trigger, basically, for us to draft that letter and send it. Mm-hmm. That's the government. Okay, just one one more follow-up, Ruslan, on that. You know, the idea of an open letter, kind of people use this as a last resort of some sort. I mean, the idea of releasing an open letter, writing an open letter to this credible organization, any particular reason behind that, to putting that as an open letter? Well, because all previous attempts to reach out to Mr. Hans Kluge, Dr. Hans Kluge, failed. This person and this organization uh, never respond to inquiries. I know that colleagues from, for example, org also tried to reach out to, to the organization. We never heard back from them. More than that, in the beginning of this year, we released a quite extensive COVID report in which we put together like the sequence of events and the actions that the government has taken. We sent that a copy of that report, both in Russian and English, to all of the to the Turpin represent, representative office of the WHO and to Dr. Hans Kluge. No response. So indeed, it was, as you rightly said, the last resort. And even in this case, we don't expect an answer, but we really hope that uh, somebody responds. What kind of response will satisfy you, Ruslan? Well, as most of UN organizations, we don't expect the WHO to say, oh, yes, you are right, and we're going to take care of that. Of course, this is a utopia. This is not going to happen, yes. But at least we want some uh, engagement with the civil society. We report about death cases, particular death cases. We have proof. We have confirmation. We have evidence I have a bunch of like entire folder. One of the folders on my computer is all about x-rays and uh, the diagnosis of of Turkmen doctors. Uh, We have lists of medicines that they prescribe and uh, give to people so that they can uh, buy and, and treat themselves. I mean, all of these things, they refer to COVID. In, in the rest of the world, in Russia, in other CIS countries, people with COVID get uh, that treatment, yes? Hmm. They get that, those specific medicines. Yet, in the diagnosis part of those medical documents, it is anything else but COVID. So we have all that evidence. If they want, we can put them in touch with uh, some of the family members of those who died from COVID. We just want some engagement. We we don't want this ignorance. Ignorance is bad. Ignorance is killing Turkmen people. Ignorance mm. from both sides, from the Turkmen side, from the official government side, and from WHO, an organization that is supposed to care. Mm-hmm. Because if they don't engage now, mm-hmm. the virus is something that mm-hmm. is not is not a Turpin issue. Right. Yeah, we're talking about global problem. Right, right. Yeah. When the borders open again, reopen hopefully, yeah. Turkmenistan's denial, you know, all of the details of the virus, mm-hmm. nobody knows what it is. Yeah. Is it delta, is it gamma, is it beta, alpha, whatever. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows. And that poses threat to the rest of the world. This is one, what yeah. we wanted to communicate to Dr. Kluge. Right. Yeah, the idea is if unless everyone is safe, no one is safe. That's the slogan uh, that organizations like WHO wants us to believe. And we uh, we tried to uh, get in touch with Dr. Close uh, in the past uh, to, to invite him uh, to talk about what they are doing about Turkmenistan uh, in terms of the COVID-19. We have not yet succeeded, but our uh, platform is still open for him or any of his colleagues to, to come uh, and talk about 
their side of the story. So I have one or two relevant questions in terms of the letter. Maybe, Rachel, you would like to jump in here. International organizations like WHO, I'm sure you, you guys uh, communicate the, these type of issues to them. Have you been able to get any sort of response from them? And what is your thought about their response or lack thereof? Uh, first of all, Ruslan, it's uh, really important and really depressing to hear about your engagement with the WHO. It's uh, There are a couple of things I'd like to say. First, it's absolutely fundamental, critically important for the, for the WHO to respond. This kind of joint appeal by Turkmen civil society organizations, I think, is it's rare. And the, the fact that it's happening now is a testimony to the critical, desperate situation for people inside Turkmenistan regarding COVID. A couple of things I'd like to add to what to Ruslan's uh, really important remarks. One is, why is it that the government refuses to recognize COVID and why is it so important for there to be public engagement with the government? I, you know, I think one thing that, that we need to consider is that the particular type, and Ruslan, please jump in if, I'm, if I don't understand this correctly, the peculiar type of autocracy that Turkmenistan is means that the government can never acknowledge any mistakes. And the fact that uh, everyone knows that COVID is running rampant in Turkmenistan now and that it's killing people and that the government's violence on it is making the situation even worse, that's something that a autocracy like the one in Turkmenistan simply can't process because nobody in the close circle around Berdy Muhammadov, around the, the, the person at the top, wants to be in the position of being the person who delivers him the news that says, you have to do something about the situation, we have to acknowledge it. Who's going to stick their neck out to say, it's time that we acknowledge that we have COVID in the country? And that, it, that kind of autocracy is, as Ruslan said, it's killing people, right? Because no matter how much the government does to take preventative measures, like tell people they, you know, to, to, that they have to wear masks, to enforce mask mandates, to make vaccinations uh, available, no matter how much they do to promote, however, haphazardly, social distancing and everything else, if people don't have information about the virus, about cases, about deaths, they can't protect themselves. And it shouldn't be up to civil society groups alone to document that the, the virus exists in Turkmenistan, to document the path that it's, that, it's, uh, that it's carving, to document the deaths, to document where it's happening. That should be the job of qualified epidemiologists and social scientists that the government should be engaging to plot out the, like, the growth of, of the epidemic inside, inside Turkmenistan. And the fact that it falls to civil society groups who aren't even allowed to operate openly inside the country, I think that, that, that fact tells you a lot about why it is that this government isn't acknowledging a fatal pandemic. Mm. Certainly, Rachel, we are going to talk about what the government is doing, why it is doing what it is doing. In terms of the international community's engagement with Turkmen authorities on this matter, is there any experience that you would like to share with us, with our audience, that you might have had in trying to convince them to do something about what appears to be a very green picture in the country? Uh, we haven't had any engagement directly with the Turkmen government about this. So we've done publications about the government's failure to recognize recognize COVID, about the growth of COVID cases. We've done press releases about it. We've the government of Turkmenistan has never replied to a single 
a publication or even a single letter that we have directed its way on any issue mm. uh, in it appears at least that two decades. It, it appears that Turkmen authorities are not going to do anything, is not going to say anything. So we understand that part. What about the international community, like organizations like WHO, like other organizations that might be involved in the uh, uh, global campaign to curb this uh, pandemic? Have you had any engagement with those types of organizations in your efforts to convince them to do something about this green picture in the country in Turkmenistan? Right. No, we haven't engaged the WHO directly on Turkmenistan. We've communicated with them on on social media platforms. We've in our press re- in our publications and our documentation. We've urged them to speak out uh, there. You know, the WHO. I think it might be interesting for us to talk about the trip that the WHO made to Turkmenistan back in 2020. Um, and extensive negotiations that seemed mm-hmm. to, to, to be taking place around that trip. And I think a lot of people were really looking to the WHO to use that as a moment to really make it clear to the Turkmen government that it has to needs to recognize the, mm-hmm. the toll that the pandemic is taking in the country. And, I, you know, Human Rights Watch was among the organizations that was pretty uh, surprised and very disappointed that the communications that came from the WHO after that was documented in the letter that Ruslan's and the other organizations published. The communications after that, the WHO simply didn't um, really hold the government to task. Hmm. They, 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 they just, the WHO chose to just dance around the issue. I mean, they made they made they made clear that uh, that they knew that there was COVID cases in the country. That you have, but you really have to read between the lines, and that and that gave the government the wiggle room to like continue to be able to deny that they have any COVID in the country. Yeah, not helpful. But Bruce, uh, before we move on on doing some sort of a reality check on the ground in the context of the, this letter, just one final thought from you about this letter, the content of this letter. I know we spoke about this a little bit uh, earlier. So what was going on through your mind when, when you were going through this letter? Well, I mean, I, th- I think it's a shame that, that it's it's come to this point. I mean, Turkmenistan's healthcare system was was not in good shape prior to this pandemic, you know, and I I knew that because I had been researching specifically that that sector of their uh, their country for for somebody else, so I knew it was in bad shape. But you know, when you as a blick is getting these reports and and of course this letter, but how many cases there are? The hospitals are full; they don't have adequate medicine. They don't the people working there, the doctors and nurses don't have adequate um, personal protection equipment. You know, on and on, and to see the government just to go over that the government keeps denying that there's even any cases um you know I, i mean rachel gave some reasons why they can't they they always want to say everything's perfect and everything in the country but you know that that brings us back to the response from the international community if that is in fact you know going to be the response from the Turkmen government. I understand that a that an organization like the World Health Organization does not have power. They can't force inspections upon them. They can't announce sanctions of any of any kind against them or anything like that. But but if the government in Turkmenistan is that resistant to, to this, then they could at least denounce them. But not strongly, just say we, we the evidence that you presented uh, is highly suspect. We have every reason to believe that you're in the midst of a huge crisis in your healthcare crisis in your country. We're more than happy to help. Lots of people would help you, but you are going to have to admit that this is a problem in your country and let people in to try to help you with that. Because ultimately, you know, especially a group like the WHO, you know, they said they're they're concerned with the health of people all around the world. Well. You know, if if people are dying in Turkmenistan all the time, and we're talking thousands, probably tens of thousands anyway by this this point that have died in Turkmenistan, you know, then speak up for those people. 
you know, and say, we don't believe that your your figures are accurate, your, your testing, we haven't even seen any results from, you know, you haven't given us any samples that you wanted to, that you promised to give us, you know, and, and we have great concerns for the Turkmen people and also concerns about the irresponsible behavior on the part of the Turkmen government on this. Why not call them out? You know, this is not the Chinese government. Uh, you know, that's big and powerful or something, uh, you know, and it's not even North Korea where we know for years that they just mm. will cut off, you know, any response at all. I mean, Turkmenistan is actually, it's got neighbors, mm. you know, all over the place. Uh, North mm. Korea, right? It, it borders China and mm. South mm. Korea. That's it. So, but but Turkmenistan has uh, borders with Kazakhstan, mm. Uzbekistan, Afghanistan, uh, you know, and, and Iran. You know, and, and as you said at the start of the broadcast, until everybody's safe, nobody's safe, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's it's really irresponsible, so, you know, in, in, beyond in, Turkmen's border, Turkmenistan's borders so for in, the government to, to keep this up. In that context, uh, Bruce, has there been any initiative by immediate neighbors? I mean, if the things remain really uh, grim in the country, certainly they will come when it will uh, spill over to the neighboring countries. So from that perspective, have you seen anything immediate neighbors are trying to do in terms of trying to help, in terms of trying to convince the authorities in Turkmenistan or in any form of shape? I haven't seen anything that, that made it, you know, in, in public. Uh, I'm sure that, that at one time or another, this, this must be part of conversations uh, mm-hmm. that go on when Mirzioyev in Uzbekistan talks to Berdy Mukhamedov or when Takayev talks to him. You know, it, it, we know that Iranian Turkmen ties are not great right now. Uh, Afghanistan, I, they have so many problems in that country that sadly, you know, that concerns about spillover of coronavirus into Afghanistan from Turkmenistan, mm-hmm. although Afghanistan's already got their own problem with it, yeah. probably way, way down on the list of problems in Afghanistan anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but but certainly this must have been raised. Um, you know, I mean, I, Turkmenistan, in some, I guess in some ways, is fortunate it's a desert country at the moment mm. because it means that there's not huge population centers on the other side of the border in Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan. I think if there were, you would probably hear the governments in, in both in Nur Sultan and Tashkent speaking mm. up a lot louder about, you know, we're trying to control the situation mm. in our country and your neglect, total neglect of trying to, mm. to do something about mm. this is, is causing us problems mm. and you have to do more than you're doing. Right, right. Of course, so far we have been uh, very much focused on the letter, but the letter comes in the light of what Ruslan was describing as a severe challenge, the stress that people are under due to the lack of proper handling by the authorities, which of course comes from the fact that according to the authorities, there is no COVID in the country, though we are receiving growing signs to the country. And of course, this uh, position by the authorities in Turkmenistan defies all the logic, but you know what to do. Here we are. So let's talk about the ground reality and the situation which prompted the NGOs to raise a red flag and ask World Health Organization to, t- uh, to take this seriously in an absence of continued denial by the authorities. We will continue the conversation talking about these and many other questions very shortly. First, let me recap the debate that today on the Majlis podcast, I'm joined by Ruslan Matiev, the editor of Turkmen News and the uh, one of the authors of the open letter. Rachel Denver, Human Rights Watch, is deputy director for Europe and Central Asia Division. And Bruce Panier, the editor of Ready for Europe, Ready Liberty, Central Asia blog, Kishlok Awazi. I'm Mohammed Tahir, host of the Majlis podcast and Ready for Europe, Ready Liberty's media manager here in Washington, D.C. And we are discussing the impact of COVID-19 in Turkmenistan in the light of a recent urgent 
letter by a coalition of Turkmen NGOs addressing World Health Organization to intervene. So ground reality, uh, it's in increasingly hitting the international headlines. Earlier this week, I guess BBC correspondent had a long feature about the continued impact of COVID-19 in Turkmenistan. Yes, it is grim. Uh, Ruslan, as you were talking about, it is grim. But how grim is this? Is there any way to put this, the seriousness of the situation in a visible, touchable way? Well, you know, people turn to hospitals. Mm. You know, I have several sources that personally experience this. It's not that they heard it from somebody, although they also hear it from other people. But two people in particular went to the hospital and said that they had all um, symptoms of pneumonia, let's say, that, you know, they weren't feeling comfortable in this heat with uh, high fever, with uh, difficulty to breathe, inhale, and uh, that they lost all senses, like they couldn't smell things or taste food, you know. They lost all of those senses. People were simply turned away, you know. Nobody even opened the doors. If one person managed to get inside the hospital, I won't for his own safety, I won't name the region where it was, but one person managed to get in. He went inside, saw a doctor, the doctor like was speaking to him like the person had, I don't know what, COVID probably, and the doctor realized it. But uh, the, the conversation was on distance. There was no medical checkup that was carried out for him to, you know, identify what he actually had. But uh, when the person told the doctor about the symptoms that he had, the doctor gave simply a list of medicines that the person needs to buy in the pharmacy and uh, referred to the family doctor and the family nurse to get all of those injections and the, the drips, you know. That's it. So uh, it's not because the hospitals are overcrowded while they are overcrowded. Yes, that's true. It's just, I, I don't know how to explain it. It's uh, also the doctors are tired of, the, of this, you know. From the one hand, they need to take care of patients. Yes. From the other hand, they are not allowed to define the, 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 the problem, the illness. They yeah. don't name it. They're not allowed to do so. That was, that was a strange thing uh, coming out of from this BBC report recently. I mean, the doctors cannot diagnose this thing. Um, so if they are not able to diagnose this thing, of course, it creates lots of uh, other complications on so many different levels. But uh, Ruslan, what you said kind of uh, strikes out there. So doctors are prescribing something, some sort of injection to those people who come to, to see them at the hospitals. Uh, we know what kind of injections are required for uh, for patients with symptoms of COVID-19, but what they are prescribing, I mean, is there any, any idea about that? Uh, we know even, I have papers, I have medical documents where all of those medicines are listed and we compared them against the medicines that are given elsewhere in the CIS for patients with COVID and they match they match. Mm. So they give, they prescribe medicines that are supposed to help against COVID. But at the same time, in the diagnosis section of those medical documents, it is anything else but COVID. I'm going to open uh, just one document here and tell you what those, I believe this is uh, safe to say. So, riboxine, vitamin B complex, fluconazole, natri chlor, Ambaxol, penicillin, novocaine, am amicacin, essentiale, 
Seza Forte, Diclofenac. This particular medicine I know from the papers of the Turkish diplomat uh, Mr. Kemal Uçkun, who died uh, last year. The same medicine was given to him, including fluconazole, which I already named. Then Iupfilin, Yod, Ciclofiron, Aciclavir, Corglicon, Dixamitazon, Tricepol, Aloe, and something else like that. And the diagnosis here it says. Total intestinal pneumonia is a toxic myocardite. So, uh, like total interstitial uh, pneumonia, toxic my—I don't know the English word. Mm. This myocardite. No, no, so we, we, basically, we get, total like. Uh, yes, uh, sorry. What I'm saying is that we get the point that you are trying to raise there. But what what I'm confused here is, you know, I, I wish I would have some medical background, or there would be anyone. Uh, on this panel with some be- medical background, but unfortunately we don't. But in terms of the COVID-19, I, I don't know if any of those medicines are relevant, at least in the world that I am in. There, is, there are vaccines that simply you get those vaccines, and that's what's available in terms of the treatment. What I'm trying to understand here is, of course, there is a kind of strange ban or maybe hesitation by the doctors to diagnose a patient as COVID with the known symptoms. Maybe part of the confusion coming from that stated policy. But the way they are trying to treat this, that kind of raises another question. Maybe, Bruce, if you would like to jump in, please do. Do they even know what they are in? Well, that, you know, that, that's that's difficult. I imagine it changes from doctor to doctor. Certainly this far along into the pandemic, um, you know, most qualified doctors, I think in any country or medical personnel would understand they were dealing with something that was new and that they hadn't treated before. Probably a good percentage of them know that that, that this is COVID. And as you mentioned, they, they're simply not allowed to officially diagnose it as being COVID, even if they, if they have the medicine to treat that, you know, in some cases, they probably don't have the medicines they need to treat it. I mean, that was certainly seemed to be the case with the Turkish diplomat, uh, where they gave him, even his wife said that he requested specific medicines mm. that they did not give him that would have helped him, you know, with, to help treat him for coronavirus, but, but they didn't give him that. They gave him stuff for pneumonia instead, uh, including antibiotics and things like that, which wouldn't have helped him at all. Um, you know, some some doctors might not know or might have been instructed that when you when a patient shows these kind of symptoms, this is the normal. This is what we, how we treat them with these specific medicines. You know, so so again, it's, you have to feel sorry for the doctor at that point that sure. even if he knows that there's something wrong here, he's been told that this is what he's supposed to treat. The, the patient comes in with a dry cough a high temperature, those kind of symptoms and stuff, then this is what you're supposed to treat them with. I, I understand this, uh, this confusion, the instruction that are coming from top creates. And I know uh, Rachel has to leave, but just one a final question. Maybe, Rachel, you would like to jump in here. I mean, there are so so many dimensions to this. First, there is, you know, this denial. And then second, there is no collaboration with the international community on this. And then with that, all this, uh, the way the Turkmen uh, health sector is trying to deal with the situation, it looks like they are digging themselves down into even a bigger problem. I think that's right, Muhammad. I think that's right that they are digging themselves into a bigger, a bigger problem because the more you stick your head in the sand, the more the problems accumulate and 
and morph into something else. A couple of points I, I, I wanted to add. It's not just that there's a policy at the top that of not recognizing COVID, and, and it's not just that doctors have to decide for themselves that they, they can't diagnose COVID when they see it. From what I understand, there are actually security officials, at least one in each hospital, a curator, that keeps an eye on what doctors are doing and who makes sure that doctors are not diagnosing COVID. And I think who might also be pressuring doctors, you know, not to diagnose too many pneumonia cases, mm-hmm. you know, to keep that kind of in check, to put other symptoms as uh, primary and rather than the key symptoms that are that, that are indicative of COVID on the on the patient's history. So um, that this is a public health crisis at so many different levels. Yeah. Because first, the, as we talked about before, public in Turkmenistan doesn't have the information that it deserves mm-hmm. to have about the spread of the disease. And second, because of the, the policy of denial, doctors have no opportunity to actually gain information, mm-hmm. gain knowledge, exchange expertise about treatment. So what, what you have is the, is the, the government forcing or, or really compromising doctors in terms of their you know, ethical obligations. But it's it's on the government that this responsibility is falling. That's very uh, very sad situation there. But you know we we need to move on and uh, need to wrap up the conversation very soon here. In the meantime, while the whole country is faced this situation, the authorities also seems to be taking some steps, despite the hesitation to diagnose patients as such, despite lack of uh, medicine and other things facilities, and they are trying to vaccinate people. Like uh, you know earlier, mm-hmm. Ruslan, you were saying like they. They are making uh, vaccination a compulsory. And they are also asking people to mask up. You know, it looks like they are taking some measures, although they don't recognize COVID to be in the country. What else do you see in anyone? Please jump in here in terms of the measures that the authorities are taking, which appears to be related to the COVID-19. I can uh, say that the government of Turkmenistan is at the moment is in some sort of agony. They don't know what to do. They are faced with a problem, and why I'm saying agony is uh, simply by uh, the September developments, when until the 1st September, when kids need to go to school, nobody knew if the school would actually start. Mm. Only like a few hours before midnight, you know, did the teachers and the parents receive text messages from uh, the deputy principals of schools or even from directors. Uh, that, okay, September the 1st, everybody comes to school, yes. Later, they studied basically for four days until the week finished, and it was announced that the school would be resumed on in October, yes. So kids go home, teachers go home, they don't worry about going back to work slash school uh, on the following Monday, and then on Sunday night, again, just a few hours before before Monday comes, they again received messages that, no, 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 school starts, come back on Monday. So we expect everybody to be at school. This is an indication of agony that the government is in the state at the moment. They don't know what to do. The entire system is corrupt. There is no control. For example, we have been receiving messages that the reason why so many people have started to die, you know, late summer and beginning of fall is because one of the vaccine batches was not properly stored. You know, it has some rules 
how you store it. it. It needs to be under certain temperature. And that was not followed. And that's the reason why so many people died, actually. When family doctors visit, for example, uh, disabled people at home to give vaccines, they simply carry those uh, syringes in their bags. There is no cooling, no ice, nothing. They simply bring those syringes, those those injections to the homes of people whom they need to vaccinate and they do the vaccines. A few hours later, people start complaining about indigestion. They start to not to feel well, you know. This is how it all starts. And uh, in generally speaking, the Turkmen society is not that healthy, you know. Any minor interference with the body, with their health, gives a negative reaction, you know. People become sick quite easily and quickly. Right. Ruslan, I, I guess so. The, the authorities have decided that, that kids will go back to school in person? Yes, yes, yes. That's mm. the requirement. Everybody needs to attend the school. According to the messages that we receive from the ground, nearly or sometimes even more than half of the classroom is empty. Yeah, because A, kids are sick or their parents are sick. They physically cannot take uh, their kids to school or parents openly refuse to uh, send their kids to school, saying that this is not safe for them. Mm-hmm. Everybody has in a family is somebody vulnerable, you know, an elderly person with diabetes, a person with hepatitis, you know, and these are all, you know, the, the, the like, uh, if you have that COVID, you're the number one target for COVID, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, schools are also open in many other countries, also here uh, in the United States, but they have a kind of a certain set of tracing structures any any thoughts as to what kind of measures are there on the ground in terms of schools to, to keep an eye on whether it's safe is academic environment is safe there health wise there are absolutely no enforcement of the rules that do exist indeed yes they need to seat the kids in a in a in a certain way like in it like mm-hmm. on chessboard mm-hmm. you know they the kids are required to wear masks and carry hand sanitizers with them but at the same time i tell you what teachers are sent to pick cotton at the moment so from the one hand you know we have several audio recordings from uh, staff meetings the deputy principal starts the meeting with okay dear children do you have like one and a half or two meter distance be- among yourself everybody says yes we do okay great tomorrow we're going to cotton to pick cotton somebody asks what i mean are you serious are you going to put uh, put all of us in a bus and take to a cotton field you know you're asking about physical distance here in the classroom in the meeting room but yet you're saying okay great tomorrow everybody goes pick, to pick cotton i mean even uh, this enforcement i mean it's it's uh, two-sided you know from the one hand they demand anti-covid uh, measures and uh, require implementation of those measures on the other hand, they sent teachers and uh, personnel, like cleaners, to pick cotton. Very green picture indeed. I don't know if uh, Rachel, Rachel, are you still with us? One, I, I am. But I... Just the one last point I, I was interested to hear from you. I mean, this uh, confusion, the whole uh, set of confusion on so many levels that earlier you also mentioned. How is this uh, affecting other walks of life in the country? Well, I mean, even before the, the, the pandemic, Turkmenistan was in the throes of very serious economic crisis. There's, it seems like they're dealing with cascading economic crises that are the results mostly of government greed and incompetence. You know, one of these crises is around uh, the fact that 
you know, with the, with the ending of travel, people have not been, uh, been able to travel to places where they might be hosted as migrant workers. Many migrant workers, Turkmen migrant workers uh, working outside of Turkmenistan have faced trouble getting sending remittances home. So, I mean, in the backdrop of a big economic crisis, rise in food prices, etc., the Turkmen economy hasn't been able to rely on people getting their remittances from abroad in order to be able to boost their household income. And that means that many Turkmen families, you know, in light of the lack of a real mm-hmm. social security net in Turkmenistan, have been really struggling to uh, just uh, to make ends meet as food prices rise and as the supply of state-subsidized food staples have disappeared. So Ruslan's Turkmen News Network has been publishing, and, and other human rights organizations as well, have been publishing devastating reports about people's in a, a simple inability to uh, get basic food staples throughout the pandemic. Mm. Okay, thank you very much, Rachel. So with uh, last point from you, Bruce, given this uh, situation on the ground entirety, what keeps you awake at night, Bruce? It's unbelievable how badly they handled this entire thing. They could have turned this around totally to their benefit, such as it is anyway. It, it is a global pandemic, right? You know, I mean, Berdy Mukhamedov and some officials have been willing to grudgingly admit that, they, that there are economic problems. But they always say that, you know, it's because of economic problems outside of our country. It, it's part of a global economic problem, and, and we're not totally immune from that. So it's affecting us, but less than it does our other people. They could have made this a patriotic campaign and said everyone's got this but we as you know our people we're gonna you know we're gonna get over this so we're gonna give you information uh we're gonna you know make sure everyone gets vaccinated explain to you why you got to do this and we as a as the people of turkmenistan you know will prevent this from spreading all over the over the place and being a problem but instead of that they, they chose to be silent about it rachel's gone now but as she said that it's unfortunate that the narrative from this always has to be you know that, that everything's great here no matter what you hear about the outside world, everything here is great. So, and I know Ruslan wants to say something, so I'll let him finish up. Just uh, the same question with that, I'm going to end the conversation here. What I had in mind is the authorities, they dig themselves down into a position where I just hardly imagine that they will come out now and say, okay, let's do something about this. It's getting serious. I don't know. Maybe you think otherwise. But uh, the question is, what keeps you awake at night in these circumstances? Well, first of all, I think the government of Turkmenistan simply does not care. You know, why I think so? Because if they wanted to reverse things, they could have done it even now. It's never late. It's never too late. Mm. It takes simply political courage. It takes willingness to say, okay, guys, I think we made a mistake. We're going to fix it all. We're very sorry for all the losses. And this is, we're going to invite, I don't know, foreign doctors to treat us. But we're going to fix it. Even now, it's not late. They don't say, they don't take such actions because they don't care. Time will pass, things will be forgotten, we won't forget it. The family members of those who died won't forget it. And sooner or later, those responsible for this disaster in Turkmenistan in particular will have to give response. Yeah, they they have to be put into account, as you say, Ruslan. Thank you very much. Unfortunately, uh, with this, we have to conclude the conversation here. Thank you very much, Ruslan Matiev, the editor of Turkmen News and one of the authors of the open letter addressing World Health Organization on a situation of COVID-19 in Turkmenistan. Rachel Denber was with us. 
us, Human Rights Watch's Deputy Director for Europe and Central Asia Division, and Bruce Panier, the editor of Ready for Pride Liberty Central Asia blog, Kishlok Awazi. Thank you, colleagues, for your time today. And this is from me, Mohammed Tahir, host of the Majlis, Ready for Pride Liberty's current affairs talk show focusing on Central Asia. Until next week, bye-bye.